0: This is John Sills, author of The Human Experience, How to Make Life Better for Your Customers and Create a More Successful Organization, and you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now,
1: here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection in. With a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome John Sills to talk about his book, The Human Experience How to Make Life Better for Your Customers and Create a More Successful Organization, published by Bloomsbury Business. After starting his career at a market stall in Essex, John Sills has spent the last 25 years working in and with companies around the world to make things better. For customers. He's advised organizations such as Sky, The Body Shop, Ovo Energy, Invesco, Morrison's eBay, and Unicef. Now managing partner at customer led growth company The Foundation, John also spent 12 years at HSBC, starting on the front line and finishing as head of customer innovation. HSBC is a bank. John works closely with Young Enterprise, a charity that helps young adults become the next generation of entrepreneurs, and is a mentor for the School of Marketing. His writing has been featured in The Guardian, Management Today, and Work, as well as having work exhibited at the Imperial War Museum, the Foundling Museum, and as part of the Bloomsbury Festival. And, interesting fact, he is an award winning model. <laughs> On the John, congratulations on the human experience and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Well, thank you. I mean, I have to say, I don't think my career could top the modeling competition I won when I was two years old. I think everything else has just been trying to reach those heights again, but I'm really, I'm really glad you mentioned that.
1: Well, yeah, uh, and it's, <laughs> I know it's, it's a struggle to peak so early in life. So you actually won uh, a modeling competition when you were two years old?
0: Do you, want, do you know, actually, the, the worst part about this? I did. I won a modelling competition called the clacton on sea Bonnie Baby Competition. And uh, it's kind of family legend. There were 29 little girls and me, and I won. And this is a source of huge pride. And then I found out about a year ago that the judge of that modelling competition was uh, my godfather's cousin. Uh, so <laughs> I suddenly suddenly realised that perhaps I didn't actually win because of my dashing babyish good looks, uh, and it was all a big uh, early taste of nepotism in the world. Well, um, so, I, but yeah.
1: you know, John, you have to go for whatever advantage you have, and I, you know, people can go to this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com dot com and see that you are in fact still. Not an unattractive man. You're a good-looking guy, like so many of the marketing book podcast listeners. So your book is the human experience, and I just, I just have to ask: Is your favorite band the English synth pop band, The Human League? I'm only
0: human. It's a great track. It's a great track. It's a great band. I think I'm trying to collect songs and uh, and bands that have just got human in their title now. Um, I did actually want to just call the book Human, but my publisher said that's probably a bit grand, and I think that's <laughs> been used a bit too. That title's been used a bit too much already. So, well, that's maybe
1: the next amazing. one. Yeah, but that could, you know, when you give these keynotes around the world, that could be one of your walk-on songs. You know? Yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, there's no charge for these ideas, uh, John. <laughs> you know, I'm,
0: I'm, I'm noting them all down. as Yeah. Yeah, maybe, so, maybe my next modeling competition. I yeah,
1: yeah. You know, you got to keep your options open. And as they say, John, uh, you have to have diversified revenue streams. So yeah, <laughs> now I saw that the book is endorsed by Rory Sutherland, the vice chairman at Ogilvy UK. And I interviewed him a few years ago about his alchemy book. Ah, oh, what a book. You know, when I see that he's like on a cover or he's endorsed it, I just can't. Res- I can't resist. I, I have to start looking at the book, and I've read some other had some other books on the show recently where he wrote the foreword. Just phenomenal. Let mm. me read what he wrote. He writes, and I'll read it in my accent. I won't try and impersonate uh, Rory. <laughs> no one can do that. Even though Britain proudly claims to be a service economy, most transactions with business and government seem designed entirely around the convenience of the service provider, not. The value to the consumer. We really do need a Copernican revolution in both government and commerce to overcome this wasteful misalignment of effort. And this revelatory book will tell you exactly where to start. And you know, your book is about the human experience. Human. I can't. I I feel. I feel liberated because I want to mention that in the uh, acknowledgments, one of the people that you mentioned is your your dear mother who passed away just before this book was published. And I'm sorry to hear about that. And you write, you were mad as a hatter, (laughs) but gave everything you had to help us on our way. I think that's great. And then you also mention a final word of thanks to my wonderful Nan, who, when she was 101 years old, gave me her two bits of wisdom for a long and happy life which I will pass on to you now. And listener, if you don't listen to anything else, this is probably the most important thing you're going to hear in this interview. Number one, drink whiskey every day. Number two, laugh at the world.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and I think they—I uh, think they have to be in that order uh, because I think <laughs> drinking drinking whiskey every day then really, really helps to helps you to laugh at the world in a much better way. I find. Yeah, uh, if, if you get through it. <laughs> yes,
1: and I've done a lot of research on that, so it really appealed to me Yay. and. I just I just saw that and I thought, how can you not like Nan? You know,
0: it did. Yeah, this was it. She was she was a wonderful, wonderful woman. I was was with my mum. I actually I had to get my sister's permission to write that my mum was Mad as a Hatter, but my sister was happy with that. But you know, my nan was just one of these incredible, incredible women that had kind of lived through the lived through two wars, lived through the Blitz, stayed in London. uh, You know, owned a pub, done all kinds of jobs. You know, retired for a very long time, but was just happy every single day. Just funny every single day uh and yeah i remember asking her about that that advice and it just made so much sense i actually bought her some um i bought her some uh whiskey and some jams for her 100th birthday actually and i went round her house about six months later and all the whiskey had gone <laughs> all, all the uh all the jams were still there. And she said to me, she said, oh, John, do you want some jams? She said, someone bought them for me. I can't remember who, but they're horrible. I don't want those. Uh, yeah. Take <laughs> can, them away. Can
1: you? can you take the jam and just bring me some more whiskey? Bring, oh, man. Exactly. <laughs> oh, gosh. How can, you not, how can you not love a grandmother like that? So, yeah, yeah. Well, God, God bless your mom and your grandmother. I want to read from uh, page 15 where you write, ultimately, the only thing that really matters is how you make people feel. Companies should be there to help make life as easy and enjoyable as possible, not to create extra worry, stress, and wasted time and energy for people who'd rather be watching Netflix, going for long walks, or even spending quality time with their families. Increasingly, this humanity seems to be pushed to one side in favor of the illusion of efficiency. Yet... In reality, investing time and effort in creating a human customer experience will in turn lead to a more efficient organization. Not just happier customers who will instinctively buy and recommend more or a stronger brand that will be more attractive to potential customers, but a reduction in costs through fewer calls, fewer surveys, fewer errors, fewer complaints, and the vastly reduced attrition of employees. Therefore, in this book, I'll argue that restoring humanity to customer experience, balancing the human, and the functional experience is better for both customers and business. And as someone who's read the book, you do that extremely well. Now, I want to jump to a page just beforehand and talk about The Wizard of Oz. Just because I'm presuming that I could be kind of human if I only had a heart. So, Hugh Wright... (laughs) about how the Tin Man, that's who that was, yeah. a well-mannered, well-functioning chap who could, with some regular oiling, make his way along the yellow brick road. While the Tin Man was able to get to where he wanted to go, he was miserable. He didn't have the one thing that would have made him, and I'd imagine his venturing companions, truly happy, a heart. Many companies and customer experiences nowadays have something of that Tin Man feel about them? Explain.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's that's right. I mean, there's two two things with this, and and the, the last thing I'll share is how actually that ended up being quite controversial. But yeah, this I mean, this started for me about four or five years ago, and I was on holiday in the uk and i was with my wife and my son and we were on a day out on one of these kind of beautiful old steam trains and you'll probably know the kind i mean like big deep leather seats that you could fall back into and a nice big oak panel table you could spread your food out on and sort of an uh, orient express vibe yeah exactly you know someone coming down and handing out uh you know nice food for you to eat on your table with a knife and fork um and my son said to me um Daddy, is this what it's like when you get the train into London every day for work? <laughs> and uh, and I kind of stopped and laughed, and my wife laughed, and I, and I said, "Well, well, no. I mean, it's emphatically nothing like this. I'm lucky to get a stranger's sweaty armpit and a cold, wet panini handed out to me if I'm if I'm lucky." And not to brag. Yeah, not what well, exactly? Not everyone gets the cold, wet panini. <laughs> yeah, some people it's a sausage In fact, I did go on a t- I did go on a train once, and they did do a special announcement that they'd run out of quiche, and I always thought that was that was interesting. That that was deemed really important. Yeah, and worldwide. I'm sure that
1: was the last straw for you.
0: That was it. There was no quiche on this service because of a delay in Newcastle. Um, but yeah, and 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 I it got me it got me thinking really about you know we've had all this incredible technology in the past twenty years uh, to help improve customer experience, and um, you know but the sign of progress, the sign of real progress is to make things more efficient uh, and better. In a way that keeps the level of quality at least the same, if not improving it. Uh, and more and more, when you look around organizations and you look around customer relationships, it feels like all of this new technology has come in and there's been great strides in some elements of customer experience. But actually, uh, I'm not sure things have got better. In fact, I think things have got worse. In fact, I know things have got worse because the data shows it. The, the satisfaction data in the UK hasn't budged. There's a fantastic thing in the US called the National Rage Survey uh, in 1972. It was it was a White House study actually, uh, and thirty six percent of people had a problem. Uh, with a company that year by 2016 that was up to 66 percent by uh, 2022 it's gone up to I think 72 or 73 percent now uh, so there's a clear decline in the relationships that, that customers are having even though we've had all of this new technology and yeah so I think that is that you know organizations are focusing on this functional experience but we've lost this emotional connection this human connection that's left organizations full of humans that aren't allowed to act in a human way the reason it ended up in slightly controversial is because I said this is just like the tin man you know he had everything he needed he could walk along the road he was he was functionally fine but he didn't have a heart and then my wife pointed out oh yeah but at the end of it, it turns out that he doesn't need a heart uh, it turns out he's got everything he already needs uh, which kind of ruined the analogy just slightly but then I kind of argued it back around that said well I think organisations have got everything they need because they've got humans in them that can act in a human way they don't actually need anything extra they just need to let the human they've, humans they've got be the human selves that they are, so that's where that's where the link to uh, to the Tin Man came in, uh, and uh, and I think it still stands up despite the, uh, the the criticism from my partner. The Tinsmith forgot to give me a heart.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> the book is very neatly organized into uh, three myths, seven behaviors, and five enablers. And uh, of course, whenever I hear the word enabler, it makes me think of all my. Many alcoholic friends and uh, family members. I'm not an alcoholic. I just need a room dedicated to booze. <laughs> but I digress. So let's talk about the myths in your book. And in answer to the listener's unasked question, I know these people pretty well. One of the myths is not about the moon landing because that's just too obvious a myth. Let's talk about the first one, though. These are real, these are real myths. Uh, very, mm. very important. The myth of customer... Loyalty. We're going to hurt some feelings here. You realize that, John? <laughs> but yeah. what, why is that a myth? Explain. Yes,
0: yeah, so and this is probably the one. Since the book came out, so it came out in the UK in February and in, in the US in April and not in uh, Australia in May. Since the book came out in the UK in February, this is the one I've probably had the most feedback on. Shall we say? Um, I mean, that makes it sound like hundreds of emails. I mean, it's about three emails, and one was from my sister. But um, but I think the you know what w- what we see at the moment is organizations and leaders in organizations talk about customer loyalty you know they talk about customers being loyal to them and how can they build customer loyalty and i just don't believe that customer loyalty even exists as a as a principle i think what you're really talking about is usefulness so i used to yes. have a taxi company i used to use a taxi company where i lived and they were fine good cars low prices you could pre-book but you couldn't uh, you couldn't pay by card you know you didn't know where the car was and then uber turned up And all of a sudden, I could pay by card, and I knew where the car was. So I started using Uber. But then about a year later, my local taxi company bought out their own app. And now I had a local taxi company that had good prices that I could pre-book, that I could use my card on, and that I knew where the car was. So I just stopped using Uber again. And that's not about loyalty. It's about, you know, you just have to stay more useful to your customers than your nearest competitors and alternatives now when we where you do see loyalty is with people friends family communities for example sure um, you know and that's where you might see if, a, if a, uh, a sports team's in trouble for example you might see people in the community out with buckets collecting money or raising money to build a roof on a church for example you don't see that with some of the companies we've seen disappear from our high street re- recently now the reason this matters because some people would argue that this is semantics that I'm talking about usefulness and that customer loyalty is used as a shorthand internally for to describe this usefulness but the problem is words really matter and if leaders in organizations believe that customers are loyal, then they stop trying to impress them. Uh, they focus on onboarding, they focus on acquisition, they focus on winning customers and marketing and bringing those customers in, and that's really, really crucial. But then they stop trying. They stop trying to keep the relationship. It's like you know having great first dates with your partner. You know being the perfect partner all the way up until you get married, and then as soon as you get married, uh, you know you let yourself gain weight and you stop going out on dates and everything else that happens in the relationship with us. That's exactly what we see in organizations, and that's why I think it's important to challenge the concept of loyalty uh, in the way that it's currently used.
1: Yes, well, let's not spoil it for all those unmarried people about what's ahead in life, but, (laughs) you know, there was a book on the show quite recently by Alan Adamson uh, called Seeing the How, and in that book, it it had to do with... uh, understanding your, your customers better, which you talk about in uh, chapter 15, when I, which I want to get to. It was my favorite chapter. And he talks about how uh, at one point years ago, they were researching people for a chain of pizza restaurants in the United States. And all these people seemed to have a lot of loyalty. They were saying, oh, that's great. We like this place. They're, you know, they're very nice. They're very friendly. And they just weren't really getting very good insights. And finally, someone said, well... They were mistaking it for loyalty, and they said, well, what would happen if the chain went away? And without skipping a beat, they'd say, oh, we'd go to the one down the street. No problem. We like them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) It's it's exactly right. You know, If any of your listeners are are listening and thinking that I'm wrong, I'd encourage all of your listeners to think about a company that they believe they're really loyal to. And then if you say, well, if overnight they tripled their prices and the quality reduced by half – would you still use them? Almost definitely not. Now you might, you might, if your, uh, if the organisation is psychologically or socially useful. So someone like an Apple or a Tesla, where the brand represents something about who you are. Patagonia, for example, you know, they might, in that case, still use them, even if price and product quality change. But even then, that social and psychological use, you know, usefulness can disappear. If you say, for example, you bought a Tesla, or you thought you were loyal to Tesla, and say, for example, the owner of Tesla went to buy a massive social media company and started to show that he perhaps wasn't a particularly nice uh a particularly nice manager and he was starting to challenge other business leaders to cage fights you might start to think maybe tesla isn't quite as socially useful as it used to be in the past <laughs> so even then there's uh his elements that come into it
1: yeah yeah and there's an, an author of course there have been hundreds on this podcast but uh bob hoffman the ad contrarian mm. and uh mm. You, you may have uh, heard of him. He's been yeah, on a number yeah. of times. And he, he 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 talks about the same thing. A number of authors have. But this myth of customer loyalty, <laughs> of course, he does it with very salty language, which years ago required me to produce a listener advisory uh, to air before <laughs> the show in case they had children in the car. And he talks about, look, people want a reasonably priced product they can rely on. And they want to be left alone. They don't want the brand to make love to them. They, they don't yeah. want to have a relationship yeah. with the brand. So that's, that's really a, a hard truth, and it's a very important one to make. Let's jump to the next one. Yeah. The myth uh, – wait, let me, let me tie that up with a, a nice bow here. You write, customer loyalty is a myth. Staying useful is what matters. And if in doubt – and this is going to hurt some people's feelings – remember – that nobody cares about your business as much as you do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no truer words, no truer yeah. words. Uh, the next one is the myth of customer feedback. And you talk about how we're living in an epidemic of uh, feedback requests. But you know, speaking of feedback, uh, John Sills, can we just pause for a moment and uh, let me know on a scale of zero to 10, how do you think this interview is going? Uh, don't answer that question. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But talk about this, the myth of customer feedback. This is, uh, there have been whole books about this this topic and the perils of uh, of bad customer feedback.
0: Yeah, this, this is my favorite topic, actually. You know, it's it quite similar to the amount of technology that we're using at the moment. But, you know, we've never had more customer information coming into organizations there's an absolute deluge of it and as a customer you can't have any experience now without immediately being asked to rate your experience and ask whether you would recommend that organization to 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 someone else um and and this is really useful you have to do this you have to find out about customers but the problem is all of this feedback is at what i call the thin end of the wedge if you imagine your customer's life as this kind of wedge shape this triangle shape on its side At one end, you've got all the things that really matters to them, you know, their real world, their real life, their hopes, dreams, ambitions, their friends, their family, their work uh you know the services they use to help them when they've got problems the services they use to help them to do great things and then right at the very end of that wedge at the very thin end of the wedge is you and your organization but the problem is 99 percent of all of this customer data and research coming into organizations is at the thin end of the wedge what do you think about us what do you think about our service <laughs> what do you think about our products would you recommend us would you recommend how us,
1: how great are we
0: how great are we? Tell us how great are we. And and the problem with this is all of this data coming into organizations, it convinces leaders that they're close to what matters to customers. Whereas in truth, they're only close to customers' opinions of their business. And that's a very subtle but a very significant difference. The best organizations, we call them customer pioneers, organizations that really trailblaze on behalf of their customers. They get up to the thick end of the wedge. They understand what really matters, what's really going on to customers in their lives, and how they they can be most useful to them in their lives, not just this inside-out spiral of what do you think about us. So it's not good for organisations because it tricks them into thinking they're close to what matters to customers and they're not. And it's really bad for customers because of Daniel Kahneman's peak emerald, the last bit of the experience is the thing that, one of the things you remember the most. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, the last bit of all of our experience is being chased and hassled uh, to uh, to give feedback when organisations could just look at the data they've already got and see how happy I am.
1: Uh, related to this, uh, thin part of the wedge, you quote this, uh, Unilever executive who said, people are only consumers for a few hours of the day. If you don't understand how to add value to hours of their day outside of being consumers, you run the risk of creating a brand that lacks staying power. And then on the next page, you quoted Terry Leahy, mm. CEO of Tesco he writes, uh, he said, what Creates loyalty is how much we understand your life and what we do about it that helps your life. If you don't have a vision as a retailer that you are doing this to understand customers better and deepen that relationship, you're always going to wonder <laughs> why you're making the effort. Your section, your whole chapter on the myth of customer feedback also brought to mind the book Ogilvy on Advertising from the 1980s, which was one of two books that have had the biggest impact on my working life. And he, he talks about the same things, how people will... Often tell you what they think the researcher wants to hear, and uh, there there's a lot of leading questions. I mean, it's it's still it's still a problem. Actually, you know what? It's probably even more of a problem now <laughs> with yeah. with all this survey fatigue uh, that we have. So.
0: Well, well, it, well, it's it's you know, even even more than that, really, Douglas, that, and you mentioned Chapter 15 that we'll come to in terms of staying connected to your customers, but I, I heard a fascinating story the other day about funerals, actually. It's a, a guy I know that used to run one of the big funeral companies here in, in the UK, and uh, he went in as managing director, and their customer service score was 98%, 98%, really, really high score, but he, he was very Like
1: 98% meaning...
0: Happy, really happy. Ninety eight percent out of a hundred satisfaction. So wow. yeah, you know, really, really high satisfaction score. And the whole company were really proud of this. But he was a very experienced manager and he thought that's that's too like that's really good. Like you don't get those scores, really. So he spent a bit of time, you know, uh immersing in the experience and realized that yeah, actually it wasn't quite as good. Anecdotally he could tell it wasn't quite as good as, as he thought. Anyway, he put it to the back of his mind. And then a few months later he was doing some other research where they got together a group of customers that had been arranged funerals maybe six months before And, um, and he kept hearing the same phrase over and over again which was oh if I'd known I would have done it differently or I wish I'd known that at the time and so he got those people to fill in redo the survey that they did Six months previously, and the score went down to sixty-two percent, and he called these people the secretly disappointed, mm. because of course if you've arranged a funeral or any big stressful uh, moment, frankly, you know, and you get a survey straight afterwards, and it says how was it? You just go, it was great, thank you. It was exactly what we wanted, exactly what they would have wanted. It was brilliant, thank you so much for your help. Then you spend a bit of time reflecting, because in the lead up to something like a funeral, your brain is kind of uh, full, you don't have a lot of cognitive space, afterwards you're just grateful it's over 10 out of 10 done. In the six months afterwards, you start reflecting and going, I oh, don't you know if I'd really thought about it, I could have done it like that, mm-hmm. or that could have been a bit more interesting, or, or you hear other things, or oh, I didn't realise we could have driven past the sports ground on the way, he would have loved that, or I didn't realise we could have had doves, etc, etc. And so he ended up, completely redoing the way they did their uh their their kind of funeral planning with customers to make it far easier for them to make choices he worked with the team on empathetic listening to really pick up on these small things that might make a difference that the person wasn't in the mental frame at the time the mental state at the time to be able to to really kind of take on and do something about and he he introduced this six-month survey as a permanent thing which over time went from 62 percent to 80 percent but yeah this this principle of the secret. Disappointed. I think it's just an example of how surveys are good to an extent, but people don't know how they behave. People don't know how they behave. So you have to observe people if you really want to understand what matters to people. It's not that they'll lie to you, they just will tell you what they think is true, even if it's not true.
1: Yeah. And I also wonder if uh, they do that to get their time back. You know, I'll go on an airline flight and sometimes I, a couple of years ago, I responded to one of these surveys and it went on and on. Of course, that was the last one I did, but I just thought, <laughs> Come on. Yeah. What, what do you – only to add to that, I, I don't really think they would have done anything differently. So that's a yeah. very – that sounds like a very smart uh, business person, uh, that, that insight they had about the, uh, the customer uh, feedback. Mm. So really yeah. well done. So if you look at any kind of uh, research study about you know, what's keeping marketers up at night, what's the biggest challenge, very often you'll see at the top of the list, uh, proving ROI. Yeah. So let's get to that third myth, in case there's still any listeners, because you obviously were, <laughs> we're just upsetting people left and right here. Talk about the myth of ROI. I mean, come on, speak truth.
0: Yeah, I, I, I can't believe you don't you think criticizing loyalty, telling people stories about and talking about funerals isn't podcast gold dust. I mean, I would have thought people would be. Uh, that, uh, that well, me- if yeah. there are any <laughs>
1: listeners still listening, please uh, reach out to us and uh, let us know and we'll we'll send you a car, <laughs> a new car. No, I'm kidding.
0: <laughs> a specific Venn diagram, yeah. ROI I think is really interesting. So I often yeah. get asked, you know, in my in my job, I get asked, you know, prove the return on the investment of customer experience. You know, why should we make things better for customers? And there's all sorts of arguments. Why is so, some of that is just social and ethical. You know, you want to have a good impact on people's lives. But more than anything, you know, people often look at it the wrong way. They look at it in terms of how can we show that improving customer experience is going to make us money, whereas in fact, bad customer experience is just really expensive to provide. Mm-hmm. A company called a Vanguard Consultancy many years ago came up with the, the principle of failure demand. Demands that are put onto your service as a result of you failing to do something uh, the correct way the first time around. And for an example, we worked with an energy company recently. 30% of all the calls that were coming into their contact center uh, were repeat phone calls because the customers weren't happy with how the call had been dealt with the first time. And you start to see this everywhere. You know you start to see uh, you know, delivery slides lots you start to see you know, unexpectedly high call volumes uh, you know you start to see email overload all of these problems that come into organizations to deal with just because the experience hasn't been good enough first of all so the best business case for improving your customer's experience and your customer experience as an organization is that it will make you a more efficient lower cost organization to run and that's really the argument in the book
1: oh so true and i'm uh, sorry I host this podcast where I interview authors, so I'm going to mention a couple other books. But there was another one that was on recently called The uh, Effortless Organization by Bill Price. And he had worked at Amazon for many years. And in the book, amongst uh, many brilliant things he talks about, is something similar to this, where he says, you know, rather than responding to these problems right off the bat, first ask, why are they calling in? <laughs> there may, there may be a problem and then and throughout the book he 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 mentioned about certain companies where they were reducing the size of their call center because they were able to engineer their customer experience such that it became more uh, frictionless. Yeah, so I think it's again-
0: exactly it's exactly that. We did a project with a company recently on empathy, uh, and it was the wrong question to ask because you don't need to train people how to be more empathetic. You just need to give people the opportunity to be more empathetic. And it was dealing with mortgages and home buying, and and you could see straight away the people in the contact centre when the when the call connects. You know that first thirty seconds, the customer is just is is just saying that script that they've pre prepared that's in their head, and that script tells you everything you need to know. Uh, But the person in the contact center is looking at all the screens in front of them with all the information popping up and missing all of that really important information that the customer is sharing. So, of course, they miss something. And as you say, the customer, the customer calls back. So I I completely agree. I think that's brilliant, brilliant advice. Just listen to your customers and everything will be far easier.
1: Yes. And then you can start to see how the ROI, uh, It works from a cost-saving standpoint. And I think I misspoke. The book is The Frictionless Organization, and that was episode 438. I'll include a link to that on this episode's website page at Marketing Book Podcast. So just to round this out, you're right. Instead of loyalty, organizations need to focus on usefulness. Instead of feedback surveys on genuine understanding, instead of ROI, on the cost of inaction. Oh, such great advice. Now, the book has uh, recurring mentions from uh, the following eight very successful organizations. I'll just mention them. AO.com, Bendigo Bank, Chiltern Railways, City Mapper, NHS Blood and Transplant, Octopus Energy, Riverford, and Workday. So if uh, John mentions them, uh, those are the ones that were very interestingly threaded through the book. I, I don't recall seeing that where you say, look, these are the books, the uh, companies I'm going to talk about. And then you mention them several times after you explained who they were in a very short chapter. So I appreciate the way you, the way you did that. So let's yeah. talk about some of these uh, behaviors. And there are seven. And let me just state what the behaviors are, because we may not get to all of them. But uh, John Sills, I noticed that they are also in alphabetical order. And when you're the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, you notice really trivial things. So, you know, yeah. don't don't think you got past this, reader. So they are accessible, consistent, flexible, proactive, respectful, responsible, and straightforward. Now, every one of those seven words could probably mean something different to everybody uh, listening. So let me just uh, jump in and maybe ask you a question or two about each one. Mm. And I'm going to go to page uh, 55 for those playing the home game, and you quote uh, Riverford Organic, which is a organic produce company, right? That's right. In the yeah, UK yeah. and France. Uh-huh. You write, uh, and this is from... Um I don't know. Was it, it was an internal document, I think, maybe?
0: Uh, it's, it's a guy. It's guy so Guy Singh Watson, who's the founder and co-owner. Okay, uh, this okay. This was me. I, I interviewed him. And this oh, oh, this
1: is from your interview. interview. Okay.
0: From an interview, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: All right. So uh, he said, if you do need to ring us, someone will pick up the phone, and they'll know what they're talking about, and they'll have the authority to make things better. People make it out to be expensive, but it's not as expensive as people think. You ring them up and get 10 options then three more options. Then put your account number in. Then you get through and get told we're too busy to answer, and you just think fuck off. It's so disrespectful to customers. So yeah, <laughs> talk about you know how are companies blowing it by yeah. being inaccessible. Now there could be a lot of different things, but you zero in on some things that they're 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 being inaccessible, and it's really hurting their business.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, and by the way, Guy's a brilliant person to interview. But like, like I think you mentioned uh, about At Contrarian, he, he does swear in almost every single line, so to become quite difficult. Fuck to, off! To, uh, yeah, exactly. To become quite difficult. Um, no, I, th- I think I think the accessible thing is actually one of the biggest things we've got we've got a problem with at at the moment. It just becomes really really difficult to contact organisations. So you, you'll know this. Any of your listeners will know this. When you get a do not reply email address. You know, organization emails you or texts you, messages you from a do not reply email address. You know, nothing says we don't want to talk to our customers more than contacting them through uh, an email address that you you just can't reply to. And I, I talk about this in the book about imagining, again, like this was your partner in real life. Imagine your partner texting you or ringing you from a number, but you weren't allowed to contact them back. Uh, Or when you did, (laughs) they'd be told, I'm sorry, I'm chatting to a load of other people at the moment. You can't can't speak to me.
1: Well, that would be fine with my wife. In fact, often when I uh, text her, uh, the response (laughs) back is, how did you get this number?
0: Yeah, yeah, leave me alone. Uh, this is what we've got the court order for. Yeah, the, uh, but the but, you, know, you see this but you see this in those kind of examples, but also just in terms of phone calls now, is organisations have tried to hope that chatbots become like these these gatekeepers. So an example for you, uh, a few years ago when my mum was, was ill, actually, I had to ring up uh, to find out if I was insured to drive her car. And I had to find out pretty quickly, like I needed to know there and then. And I rang up my insurance company and I pressed, you know, the little combination of numbers that I hope would get me through to someone and it just said uh you know did you know you can do this online and I thought well yeah because it's 2023 and I know that the internet exists I'm clearly phoning you (laughs) for a reason and then I tried another combination didn't work another combination and every time when it said did you know you could do this online it was hanging up on me and after 10 15 minutes I get through to someone and I said look I just need to know can I drive my mum's car and the first thing he says is well you know this is in your policy document and I said well I'm I'm a normal human being. I don't carry my policy document around with me everywhere I go. And then he said... Yes, you can drive your mum's car. And I thought that could have been an exceptional experience. That could have been, I phone up, they answer straight away. Within 10 seconds, I've got the answer and I'm on my way. But instead, it was 15 minutes of sheer sheer frustration. So I think, I think we're just, you know, it, it matters when you think about it. 20 years ago, organisations wanted to speak to customers because that's how you build customer relationships. That's how you build customer relationships. If a customer wants to contact you as an organisation, you've got to believe they're doing it for a reason. They're contacting you for a reason. So be there and help them. That's the quickest way to get it done and build a good relationship. But organizations increasingly inaccessible, You know, increasingly hard to actually... Uh, it's not just speak to someone, but get to someone, get the information you want. And that, that's causing real damage with customer relationships.
1: And it seems so surprising when I call an organization and I get a person.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's delightful, isn't it?
1: So let's jump to the next one. Consistency. Again, that means different things to different people but it, you write that the customer reality matches the brand promise oh my goodness that again mm-hmm. there's been entire books on branding about that one yeah. sentence right there the experience is the same However, the customer chooses to interact. And then back to the analogy you had about, uh, you know, dating and then marriage, the whole relationship is as good as the start. <laughs> so yeah, talk, yeah. talk about some of that where the companies are just, I mean, you don't have a lot of examples, but you really zero in on where companies are getting it just painfully wrong.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's a wrong answer right here. I mean, so, um, you know, I've got two small kids and, and last last year for a New Year's resolution, I thought it might be a good idea to take up meditation to help me with that situation. And um, and so I downloaded one of those meditation apps and the product was really good. You know, I had these little video or audio clips I could listen to every every morning if I wanted to. But what wasn't so good was the 10 emails that they sent me in the first week. Oh, yes. Uh, asking me to like upgrade or do this or do that or 20% off. And it's a great example of that lack of consistency. The product and the purpose of the organization is doing one thing, the marketing team is is doing another that isn't isn't aligned. Now conversely, when you look at consistency, so octopus energy who's he say I talk about in the book in in the showcase wonderful energy company that's now become the third biggest in the UK only started in 2015 which really grown rapidly they have this thing where they build a team of people for every 50,000 customers so 50,000 customers one team of people internally that looks after that 50,000 and every 50,000 customers they add they add another team of people but that same team looks after those customers so if you phone up you're actually you know pretty likely to talk to either the same person or someone that knows the person you spoke to and what it means is even in a big company they're creating this small company feel of like being known in that group people knowing who you are you speaking to the same person and it means that they're really consistent in their service that they're that they're providing it's probably the biggest problem we see at the moment is is the experience falling between those gaps uh and rather than it being consistent across and ultimately consistency builds certainty and certainty is what makes customers happy
1: yes Oh, that's interesting, and and so that team probably owns a lot of the problems. I would think they have a lot of sway. So when they have a customer problem, they're able to go back to the you know the operations folks yeah. or whatever and say, "Look, uh, we we need to address this issue. Not everything is going it's- perfectly," <laughs> as you exactly. talk about in the book. You say that there's this flaw where uh, a lot of things uh, will work if everything goes perfectly, but they rarely do.
0: Yeah, yeah. That that, that that's it. I think this is a really interesting. I think I called it the pit of despair. It was the last <laughs> yes. thing I say. It was the the last thing I put in the book. Actually, was this pit of despair? Oh, and that was very where, early in the book, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I came from another article I wrote just before the book was about to be published, and I thought, actually, actually going. Where, you know, partly because we've become very digital in our experiences, there's kind of this inbuilt belief in technology that you know, what well, if we build this digital process, it will work. Nothing can go wrong. Um, whereas in the past, I think you know, when things were less digital, there was a, a an understanding of human fallibility and understanding that errors occur. So you need to be really good at putting them right when things go wrong. Now it feels like because organisations don't believe things will go wrong because of this uh, digital approach, that um, customers just fall into this pit of despair where things either go right or you fall into the pit and just it takes months to get an answer no one in the organization knows what's going on no one knows how to fix it no one really understands how the system works and it becomes really really hard to get out of and either you just kind of give up or you write to the ceo and hope you can circumnavigate the the system somehow but yeah we're seeing that just so much at the moment and frankly if you just presume things will go wrong and set up to resolve them really well there's so much evidence as you will know that you know if you if you deal with a problem really well as an organization customers will end up liking you more than beforehand so that's not new news but i think organizations have forgotten how important that is
1: this uh it's on page 15. It's such a great, it's a very simple drawing. It would be a great thing to put on the whiteboard, like right now, <laughs> if you <laughs> folks are at work, and just say, "Where are we?" and "And what are we doing?" It, oh, it's it's great. It would get you get it, just thinking about this uh, would go well. But I think it's important to realize that a lot of these things are set up in you know PowerPoint slides uh, as if everything's mm-hmm. going to go perfectly. So yeah. let's jump to flexible. And I'm sorry, but the next section brings to mind this. Uh, Scene that I'm going to play the audio of from the 1970 film Five Easy Pieces, starring Jack Nicholson. And what's happening is he's at a diner with these three traveling companions, and they're, they're trying to order breakfast.
2: I'd like a uh, plain omelet, uh, no potatoes, tomatoes instead, a cup of coffee, and one toast. No substitution. What do you mean, you don't have any tomatoes? Only what's on the menu. You can have a number two, a plain omelette. It comes with cottage fries and rolls. Now, I know what it comes with, but it's not what I want. Well, I'll come back when you make up your mind. Wait a minute. I have made up my mind. I'd like a plain omelette, no potatoes on the plate, a cup of coffee, and a side order of wheat toast. I'm sorry, we don't have any side orders of toast, i you are English muffin or a coffee roll. What do you mean you don't make side orders of toast? You make sandwiches, don't you? Would do you like to talk to the manager? Hey, Mac. Shut up. You've got bread and a toaster of some kind. I don't make the rules. Okay, I'll make it as easy for you as I can. I'd like an omelet, plain, and a chicken salad sandwich on wheat toast. No mayonnaise, no butter, no lettuce, and a cup of coffee. Number two, chicken salad sand. All the butter, the lettuce, the mayonnaise, and a cup of coffee. Anything else? Yeah, now all you have to do is hold the chicken, bring me the toast, give me a check for the chicken salad sandwich, and you haven't broken any rules. You want me to hold the chicken, huh? I want you to hold it between your knees. (laughs) You see that sign, sir? Yes, you all have to leave. I'm not taking any more of your smartness and sarcasm. You see this sign? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> I feel I feel like I have that experience all the time. Yeah. I don't uh, throw That's everything great. off the table onto the floor. But talk about yeah. being flexible. What is, uh, what is hindering that? And what are what are companies doing to be able to make intelligent audibles, as they say in uh, in, the, in the American football world, where an employee is empowered to actually solve the problem for the customer?
0: Yeah, yeah, I love that clip. Actually, it brings back. Uh, Uh, an experience from quite a few years ago I was on a weekend away with some friends and someone was trying to order a poached egg and uh, they didn't have poached egg on the menu they had every other type of egg and I remember my my friend saying can you get the chef out here and the chef comes out and he said have you got a pan, yeah have you got water, yeah have you got an egg, yeah well I love a poached egg and in this kind of, I, don't know, I never realised at the time. Maybe he was doing a parody of that, but uh, exactly that situation. But yeah, like I think I think when it comes to being flexible, I think that's a brilliant example. It's about standing in front of the rules. You know, organisations now have, uh, or people in organisations, I think just don't feel they've got the permission to be human. They don't feel they've got the permission to just make the common sense decision. It's quite incredible because these are people that you know a couple of hours before before they turned up to work would would do that. You know, I talk in the in the book about a few different examples. There's a story of a yellow chair I bought that I won't go into <laughs> now because it will take up half the podcast, but yeah. it's an you know, incredible struggle. But one one of the examples I do I use, almost
1: I thought like, you were making that story up, and we won't go into it, but I, I really thought you
0: were – yeah, no, no. It's every single word of it is absolutely true. So that's a nice teaser for people to, to get the book. But it's the most remarkable experience I've, I've ever had. The one, the, one of the other ones in the book that I mentioned that I like is about the the, the pizza place we went to. Oh,
1: Jamie Douglas, time. yeah, and Jamie
0: Douglas. Yeah, went to went to a pizza place and he had a a voucher. He tried to use a two for one voucher, but the guy said, "Look, you can only use the voucher if you've booked the table over the phone and you've just walked in." <laughs> And he refused to budge on this. So my friend went out of the restaurant, phoned the restaurant, looked at the guy through the window while he was speaking to him, booked a table for then uh walked straight back in, sat down at his table and was allowed to use the voucher. And and it's just, you know, these examples of just uh you know, a whole lack of common sense and, and increasingly we're seeing this. Whereas organisations that do this really well and some of the ones that I talk I talk about just have this this flexibility around them. You know, I talk a lot about Honest Burgers, the restaurant over the road from where we are in in King's Cross in London. And I've got a slightly odd uh, order. I like the vegan burger, the plant burger because it's quite light, but I also really love bacon. So I asked for the vegan burger with real bacon on top. Uh, You're just a walking it,
1: contradiction, aren't you? It,
0: well, yeah, this is it. And I just think, well, I like it because it's lighter, but I love the bacon. And, uh, and they, they love it. They love it. They start calling it my special and the usual and they get other people to try it. And they're like, yeah, why not? You just want a lighter burger, but you like bacon. Go for it. Uh, it's so important. It doesn't even have to be that, that extreme, though. A lot of this is just that kind of computer says no, lack of common sense. And it's all things that the person giving that service knows if they were an outside observer that it's a ridiculous situation, but somehow it still happens.
1: Can you explain the concept of structured flexibility?
0: yeah I, I think that's it because obviously one of the things when you're in a big organization if you're going to get consistency that we were talking about before you can't allow uh, everyone just to do whatever they want you know you have to have some element of rules around that some element of structure and what I've always found well work that's worked well through my career is structure flexibility where essentially you have a, a framework it's like freedom within a framework You know, you have a framework within which things need to happen but people are free to do it in the way that they want to do it within that so one of my examples uh, i used to run a, a sales team and you know we we needed a sales team to uh, you know open the account and for the customer we needed to get the customer signed up for internet banking as it was at the time we needed to get the customer to go and meet a financial advisor we had five or six Things that we wanted to happen with the customer when they first joined us. And if you're, we, we were being far too structured about it. And we were saying all of this happened, has to happen within the first appointment. And it just wasn't happening because, of course, people don't work like that. Some people have 10 minutes, half an hour. Some people. And they know, know what they, what they want. They know what they want. Yeah. You know. And so. What we then said to our our sales team was, okay, within the first 30 days of this customer being with us, you have to have done all of those things or talk to the customer about all of those things. But it's up to you if you do it across one appointment, two, three appointments, over the phone, in person, email, however you want to do it, we don't mind. That's up to you. But the structure within which you're in is you've got 30 days and these are the things we needed to be talking about. But how you do it is completely up to you, and it transformed it. It transformed the sales team, and uh, both satisfaction and sales went through the roof as a result.
1: That's great. Yeah, it seems like it's just understanding what the customer is trying to accomplish. You talk about the start point and where they want to go, and it's a different journey and a different tempo um, for every uh, person. So let's uh, jump to proactive, and that's on – I want to go to page 97. John Sills? John Sills. What are the eight seemingly inoffensive, overly polite words that annoy you more than any other in customer experience?
0: Yeah. Is there anything else I can help with? Yeah.
1: <laughs> now, now, what's wrong with that, John?
0: Yeah. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Uh, Except if the original thing. <laughs> if the original problem I've had has been resolved. Uh, and that's the, that's the thing. It's these kind of, like you say, inoffensive, overly polite words that are absolutely fine, but more often than not... Uh, two things have happened. Either I haven't been helped uh, the first time or the person hasn't really thought about the outcome. Uh, and what we find in organisations is, again, going back to this failure demand, they're very quick to try and get you off the phone if you're speaking to maybe the phone or if on a, on a chat bot, for example, on a web chat, because they're targeted on average wait time. They're targeted on getting you off the phone as quickly as possible. And what that means is you might only have the specific question you've asked answered. If you're lucky, you get that answered. But you don't have the knowledge that the person on the other end of the phone has. So the question you might be asking might not even be, the right question you know and what you really need to do is have people that have the ability to kind of step back ask the bigger question i'll give an example i bought some tickets to the theater for my wife uh for uh, her birthday last year because i'm a wonderful husband and i think that's important to tell the world that i bought these tickets <laughs> tickets for my wife it is even um,
1: though she uh didn't really need to provide that comment about the ten man
0: yeah yeah exactly right despite that I still bought the tickets from um, I went to see the Wizard of Oz no we didn't <laughs> uh, we, um, but I, I was online trying to find out which were the best seats to sit in and it's quite overwhelming you know, you've got all these different seats to choose from you're not quite sure and so i I decided i was going to phone up and i phoned up and i got through to this this lady i think she was called Anne, and she was amazing amazing straight away she was like okay you're going to go and see moulin rouge is that right and i was like yeah and she's like okay And roughly how much money have you got to spend and i told her and she said okay she said so the thing about moulin rouge is it's got a very particular kind of stage and you have different things coming on from different sides of the stage all the time and there's a big elephant here and this here and this here so actually these seats aren't the best ones if you sit in these ones these are the seats that are going to enable you to get the best view of all the different things that happen which isn't quite what the map shows you and she gave me all this extra information of questions that I had no idea I would even have to ask let alone know what to do with the answer I was on the phone for five minutes she made the sale I probably spent more than I wanted to it was a brilliant experience it was much quicker than if I'd been on the website Uh, and it was all because she'd really predicted what I was trying to find out using her own knowledge she was really proactive in terms of the way she was dealing with me not just reacting to my question which is which seat should I book and she'd say well just go for the cheapest one or just go for the one you can afford it was a brilliant experience and then when we got there the seats were absolutely amazing and I emailed afterwards months later after I had done the original booking to say to say thank you to her for that
1: yeah And I hope you said, and I'm John Sills, and I kind of know what I'm talking about, so uh, whatever you're paying her, double it. Yeah. Yeah. Let uh, Let me put a bow around that. Page 102, you write, proactive gives a sense of certainty, a trust that the company is looking out for your best interests, taking a weight off your mind. It not only gives confidence that they'll be there should something go wrong, but also that they'll be in touch should a better offer emerge, not leaving it to chance that you may or may not see an advert or notice a renewal coming up. It's like having a leaking roof, and you call up the roof company that you've worked with, and you say, my roof is leaking, and they say, well, uh, we can't fix that, but is there anything else we can help you with? No. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Get a team out here with a tarp.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, or even worse, they turn up and they put some kind of sticky plaster over it, but you've not really dealt with the problem. You know, they've dealt with the the symptom, but not the problem.
1: Right. Oh, well, let's jump to respect. Uh, Mm. You write, uh, respect and humility are crucial human traits that seem to have gone missing in the past decade more broadly in public discourse and more specifically in customer experience. Explain what you mean by being respectful and, yes. and how organizations have kind of gone off the rails with this. I, you know, this is kind of a hard book to read because like I'm, it makes me a more difficult customer, right? It raises unrealistic expectations for any kind of purchase I'm trying to make. But also every one of these things you talk about, I, I've experienced
0: yeah I you know and and I'm kind of glad in a way because I suppose I deliberately wanted to write the book with stories that would make people nod along smile a little bit but maybe get a bit angry about as well you know I tend to end up being kind of a bit cathartic for people to either read it or to angrily email me and tell me I've had this terrible experience and you're the person I'm gonna I'm gonna tell about it i, I think yeah, the respect thing is so interesting I, you know i phrased it some of the other day as we've kind of gone from the customer's always right to the customer's probably wrong and they're probably trying to put a fast one on us you oh. know this kind of relationship is really has really deteriorated this this lack of respect and there's there's a number of ways of of seeing that it could be um uh that you know not a lack of understanding or time taken to understand how you might be receiving information or how you might be feeling i i you know in the book I talk about a feedback survey I got I had to take my mum to accident and emergency a couple of years ago in in the uh in the hospital where she was um and you know an hour after we left, I got a text message uh saying you know thank you for your recent visit to accident and emergency uh you know would you recommend? this to your friends and family if they needed similar <laughs> treatment give us a score out of 10 um so my my strongest recommendation to any of your listeners if they need emergency medical assistance is to get to their nearest doctor or nearest hospital uh not go to the one i was with in my mum just because i happened to say it was it's good so not there's a lack of respect there for thinking about how you might emotionally be feeling at that moment
1: yeah it's um, not a real considered purchase anyway
0: it's not really. And now, now you, in fairness, you know, if they text, if they would sent a message and said, how was it? Were you satisfied? And if they'd send that message a few days later, that that's more acceptable because that's okay. I kind of don't mind if they want to know. That would be great. Yeah, that would be much different, but mm-hmm. to send it an hour afterwards, when you're probably still, you know, for whatever reason you've gone into an emergency, your emotions are probably still high. Yeah. And to ask if you'd recommend it just just doesn't make much sense. So, so there's things like that. Well, but,
1: John, but what, what, let me interject. I think they do it in that particular timing because that's hmm. just about when the drugs are kicking in.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're feeling wonderful. What well, it's like they're secretly disappointed at the funerals. You're like, yeah, great. I'm just happy to be to be home. But the, um, I think the respect we see the good companies do, but it's, it's partly about time as well, respecting people's time. You know, I think yes. organizations have lost a bit of that respect. And that might come through filling in surveys or being on hold, for example. Um, your call Energy, is important to us. Your call is very <laughs> important to us. But we've got unexpectedly high call volumes for three years now. Um, but, but Octopus Energy, again, do this brilliantly. You know, there's a couple of things they do. If you – I don't know if it's the same in the US, but if you have to submit a meter reading, you know, if you have to – phone up your energy company and tell them how much energy you've used on the little clock you've got outside the house Uh, that's a really boring job that no one wants to do Um, but if you do that with octopus you get to spin this little digital wheel of fortune And you might win some money. But they do this other thing, which is if you're on hold, uh, if you phone up and you have to be on hold to them, the music that plays will be a song that was number one when you were 14 years of age. Mm -hmm. Because they know that uh, holding on the phone is a waste of your time. And they want to show that they understand that. By at least trying to personalize it, by at least trying to make it a song you might recognise and you might enjoy, because that's about the age that you first get into music, rather than just having you know a advert playing or just some kind of you know really badly audio uh, music playing as well. It came from a brilliant thing they have called Friday Night Dinner, where they all jump on a call and they spun up this idea on this one call, and it ended up being live within two weeks. It's a brilliant story of innovation, but more than anything, it just shows respect for the fact people are using their time, and and if they do have to be on hold. You've got to try and make it as palatable as possible.
1: And it makes me wonder if they're that disrespectful of their customers, how are they treating their employees? Probably worse. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and there's a, h- a huge correlation between happy colleagues and happy customers. Yes. You know, uh, f- funnily enough, on, on the actual writing of the book, uh, you know, obviously all of these, the companies, the eight companies you mentioned in the showcase are all companies that give brilliant customer experience. And so I reached out to all of them and said, look, can I speak to the CEOs or CMOs about the book? All of these companies said yes, because, uh, you know, and I thought that was really interesting that they were all really open to it. There were some other companies that I tried to get in touch with that I thought also, gave good experiences but not quite as good as these and I thought well maybe I'll interview some of those and interestingly uh, only one of those came back and said yes and I thought well, that's quite interesting actually that culturally they weren't up for talking about it, and their customer experience wasn't as good. The companies where the CEOs were really happy to be open and transparent about what they do are also the companies that give the best experience, and I thought that's an interesting correlation.
1: Oh, that's very interesting, and there was a book that was just on uh, by Tiffany Bova from Salesforce called The Experience Mindset, and they've done a lot of research. It just came out, and uh, they've, they're able to prove now that if you Uh, you you all want to have a good, everyone wants to have a good customer experience, but if you're doing it at the expense of your employee experience, you are uh, shooting yourself in the foot and the upside revenue potential is much greater. If you (laughs) give a brief moment of thought to, okay, we want to do this for the customers. How is this going to affect the employees? Yeah. yeah, Really, really interesting. So yeah, very true. So the next section is responsible and dang it, John Sills. This one really got my blood boiling. (laughs) This is the one that – seriously, this really got me – this is the one that typically gets me more upset. And I am so tired of organizations not owning up to their mistakes. I mean, the mistakes are going to happen. Just say, hey, hey, you know, it was a mistake. That At this point, I would be willing to accept the following excuse from any organization when they've screwed up. And it's a clip from one of the greatest movies in film history, which is not The Wizard of Oz. It's Animal House. You fucked up. You trusted us. <laughs> I would be happy with that answer. You know, at least it would be honest, you know? Yeah. And I think there's some, some points for that. You talk about being responsible means taking ownership of the experience and problems, helping achieve the customer's desired outcome, and caring for your customer's well-being. How are some companies able to thread that needle?
0: Yeah, you know, I think I think actually this is probably the area where I think we see the biggest problem at the moment. Ah, uh, so it's not just me. I no, no, no. I, th- I think this kind of lack of ownership and this lack of responsibility is really threading its way, actually right through society, frankly. And I think that's coming through into customer experience. It goes back to this point of, you know, is the customer always right or is the customer probably wrong? And, and we just want them to, to kind of get on with it. Um, you know, I saw a great example the other day, one of the big water companies here in the, in the UK, someone sent a tweet to them saying, I've just spotted a leak on this road in this town, I thought I'd let you know. Uh, and uh, the the company replied back and said, um, thank you, uh, you can go on our website to check if we already know about this. Uh, and if not, you can then uh, log it uh, so that an engineer will come and visit. And that was like the official reply uh, which is basically just putting all this effort Ugh. back onto back onto the customer. And you know, that was helpful
1: feedback else. somebody was providing to the water company.
0: Yeah, they didn't it's have expensive. to expensive. Yeah. Yeah, they should have just gone, great, thanks. We'll take that on. We'll look into it. We'll see if we can do it. So this this lack of responsibility we see quite a lot at, at the moment. There's a company called AO.com, and in the UK they do uh, white goods, um, uh, a retailer, so you know, selling uh, fridges, washing machines, etc., and delivering them. Wonderful organization, huge empowerment and freedom within the team. Uh, and they only have two rules as part of their customer experience strategy uh, which is uh, treat everyone in the way you'd want your grandma to be treated, uh, and make decisions that would make your mum proud. Ah, uh, yes, and that's it that's it and I love that and I particularly love the second one because John Roberts the CEO he gives great empowerment like I say to his team and, and you go "Am I, would my mum be proud of the decision I'm making and more often than not your mum will be proud if you take ownership you take responsibility I think not that you just kind of brush your hands of it and, and we need to get more of that thinking back into individuals and organisations that we've got responsibility here customers pay us we only exist because customers pay us <laughs> and because customers choose to use us and we need to start taking that ownership and responsibility again.
1: Oh, it's so powerful and it's so missing. Let's jump to uh, straightforward in our remaining time here. Page 130, you write, the most human companies are those that are the most straightforward to deal with. And uh, being straightforward to deal with is perhaps the most important behavior of all those that could deliver a human customer experience. And of course, there's big implications for all the marketing people, creating content and sales, but Talk about the power of being straightforward.
0: Yeah, I, you know, language is so important here. So important, you know. There's one, there's one element of straightforward, which is, you know, are you just a straightforward organization generally, you know, in that you, you just kind of see things as they are and talk in a common sense way. But the language element is so important here, particularly if you're in a regulated environment. It's so easy to write communications and speak in jargon. Yes, uh, and to let the legal
1: ads, team yeah. basically write it.
0: do you know what it's that it's letting the legal team write it but but it's actually you just become used to it organizations people in organizations see the world from the inside out you know i used to work in banking for 12 years and i was probably the most customer facing person of of the people i work with in head office but even i end up just talking in jargon because you're surrounded by it mm-hmm. every day you start to speak in i mean as you said i worked for hsbc so the company itself is an acronym uh, before you even get into the meetings where you're using you know various kind of jargons like aprs and various savings language and mortgage language and everything else and you forget it's called the curse of knowledge in behavioral sciences, you know, mm-hmm. as I'm sure you'll know. You forget what it's like not to know. You forget what it's like to be that person buying their first house. You forget what it's like to be that person who's never taken insurance before, who's maybe you've never been on a holiday before, who just doesn't know anything and how you explain that and how you talk about that is what makes it accessible to people is what makes it straightforward to deal with but it's so so hard to do you know and i gave a couple of examples city mapper do this brilliantly with the language they use mm-hmm. uh you know it's really little things like you know rather than saying loading they say thinking when their page is going little things <laughs> yeah. like that tiny things that humanize it there's a a, a real estate agency here in uh, in London and we used to have signs up that say for sale or sold if your house is on the market or not. And they changed it to buy me and I'm taken. Uh, just to really, really humanise it, you know, really humanise yeah. the language and it just raises a smile. And actually, yeah, okay, I kind of get that. So, you know, it doesn't have to be jokey things. It can be serious things. But if you really relentlessly look at the language you're using, and that is both the spoken word and the written word, and you start by looking at how you talk about things internally, you know, don't talk about acquisition because no one wants to be acquired. Don't talk about retention because because I don't want to be retained. Think about the language. Don't talk about loyalty. Talk about usefulness. Think about the language that you're using internally because that's the language that will end up coming out <laughs> externally.
1: It's like on a website page when you, on a landing page where you fill out the form and there's a call to action. One of the worst words you can put in that call to action is submit. Submit. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Nobody yeah, yeah, wants yeah. to submit, yeah. you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. The other day I had to fill in a, I was on a train and I wanted to use the Wi Fi and I had to fill in a big long Wi Fi form and the first thing it asked me was my gender. And I thought, Does it? Do you really need to know my gender to be able to access the train Wi-Fi? Like, why is that? Why is that? Are there a a couple
1: different systems for? uh... Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Like, what's? I don't. I just don't understand what could possibly what relevance that could have. But no, but I had a star next to it, so I had to answer before I was able to. uh, You know, and it goes back. It's accessible as well. Going back to the start, I had to answer this question before I could get the Wi-Fi.
1: Yeah, and in the book, you talk about how sometimes you have to fill out forms, and sometimes they'll ask you for your title and you put uh like the honorable or like you're an elected official and it reminded me of my my the college i went to occasionally they'll have an alumni function over the years and for some reason they have like every possible title you know like uh Mm -hmm. the general uh uh governor uh mr doctor mrs and they have one his excellency and i always pick that
0: yeah definitely (laughs) i would be exactly the same
1: i don't know what it means but i you know, I always want to see if it shows up on a name tag. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's exactly the same. The only time I got in trouble with that, I think I can't remember, I think I mentioned this in the book, was when I used to, i, I counsellor. That's right. Uh, that's right. Yeah. So in the well, you got language. a response, right? That's it. I got a response because I was complaining about a problem with the council, and I got a very rapid response, <laughs> response saying, I'm really sorry, counsellor, for the problems you've had. And then I, I kind of felt partly guilty and partly like, well, that's probably helped me get a response, actually. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of doing that and highlighting the ridiculousness of it.
1: Explain what showing the plumbing is. I love this because it brought to mind how many times where I'm given an excuse and it, I don't care. <laughs>
0: Yeah, this is a, there's a real balance in organizations between showing transparency of how you work and then just making customers go through hoops that are completely irrelevant to them. I mean, I, you know, I've always thought bank accounts are a, gr- a great example of this. Mm-hmm. You know, fourteen, 16-digit card numbers on your credit card and bank account numbers. And this is all just internal stuff that banks need to know to move the money into the right place. Like, you know, we should by now have a system where I don't need to know the numbers of my bank account at all. I can just have, you know, my 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 spending account and my savings account. And I can just call them John's spending account and John's savings account. And in the background, they can work out how all that money moves around and all these different numbers that have to go. But you know, you just don't need to see all this plumbing. You don't need to see mm-hmm. all the different departments that are involved, all the different people that, that you need to that you need to speak to. Um and, and it ends up kind of really slowing things down. It ends up becoming very confusing for customers. And again, it's it's about taking on the that ownership making things as simple as possible for customers only asking them what you need to ask only getting them involved in where they need to get involved they don't need to see or have to deal with all the inner workings of of, of your organization um you know you find it quite a lot if you if you phone up and uh, and someone says well oh, i guess it's a bit like when you phone up and people say you know unexpectedly high call volumes or this person's not in today and you go well you need to sort that out you just need to sort that out I, you know my outcome is i've got this problem i need to get to the end of it uh, you're in workings are not my responsibility. And <laughs> right. frankly, I don't really, in a nice way, I don't really care. I just want to get to my outcome. So please let me do that in a way where I don't have to take on all this extra information.
1: Well, and I think the customer th- knows that they can solve it. Uh, so it, yeah. it's, it's making it their problem. One other quick question about that. Ex- uh, explain how over apologizing can actually have a detrimental effect
0: yeah it's a really interesting thing actually it's really come up the last 10 years or so with social media um this kind of age of outrage i suppose we live in this you know uh you know this is kind of People worried that they're offending people all the time, which needs to be balanced by you know being far more reasonable in, in the way you talk about things as well but yeah, I think I tell this story of uh, I saw that I asked a question of Tesco uh, the big supermarket here in the in the u k um on on social media I asked them why they were doing something with one of their in new innovations and the guy replied and said look i'm really sorry for any inconvenience caused and i said well, there's, there's been absolutely no inconvenience at all i've just asked you a question just just give me answers just have a conversation about it and the problem is you know so the default answer at the moment is to say sorry that's a problem because it moves you into uh parent child relationships if we look at transactional analysis yes uh, relationships it moves you into parent-child relationship whereas every relationship works best adult to adult hmm uh, Um, But the other problem is then actually it starts to become meaningless, Uh, you know, so when you get complaint letters and they just say, I'm sorry for the inconvenience caused, I'm sorry, you just think, well, you're not really, you're not really sorry, and and it just becomes a a, a worthless phrase that's being used versus when you hear a really genuine, uh, sorry, I've got an example in the book from 1951 uh, of a really, really genuine apology where people, you're in no doubt of how sorry that person really is for the problem that happened. So it's, it's a problem because it's, it devalues the word, but it's also a problem because it's changing the, the balance of the relationship to, to one that isn't really healthy, I don't think.
1: Yeah, yeah. There are five uh, enablers, which we talked about. We don't have a whole lot of time. I don't want to mm-hmm. burn up. I know you've got a cocktail hour at your uh, company that I'm keeping <laughs> you from. Right. And uh, hopefully you've empowered your employees to start without you. But uh, just in case, let's, let me just ask you about one of the five, and that's the one I mentioned earlier which is chapter 15. And again, don't tell the other chapters, but this was really my favorite one. And this is just one of the great secrets to success in business, uh, certainly in marketing and sales. John Sills, I don't want to fill your uh, to-do list with things to do, but you could write another entire book about this one chapter because it's so hurting. And you write staying connected to customers means understanding and immersing in customers' lives, which we've touched upon earlier, using your own product regularly, And staying abreast of relevant changes in the world. And you write, When speaking to and researching the companies in the the showcase, companies I mentioned earlier, one common trait overwhelmingly stood out over and above all the others, staying connected to customers. And the next paragraph you write, This might sound easy, but it is, in fact, very hard. Why? Why?
0: I mean, it's, it's the most probably straightforward, basic bit of advice, but it's also the bit of advice that, that currently is being missed the most. You know, if you're going to run a successful organization, you have to really, really stay close to what really matters to your customers. Mm-hmm. And, and what we've seen, uh, and it's ma- mainly by accident because most people in organizations are trying to do the right thing, is a real detachment from people in head offices that are designing the experiences and the people, the users, the customers, the real humans who are using the experiences. And part of that is about uh, wage inequality, actually. Uh, So, you know, it's very difficult now for people that work in uh, senior manager jobs in big businesses to really uh, connect with what's happening maybe with a a Large part of the organisation, and partly it's just around a lack of actual contact because so much experience now is digital, and so many of these surveys uh, and the results come back on powerpoints and PDFs. What you tend to find is uh, leaders would rather, if they see something they don't like, they'd rather question the methodology than than, uh, accept the inconvenient truth. You know, they'd they'd rather go, "Is that the right sample size? Did we speak to the right people? Maybe we asked them at the wrong time, and we should have asked them at the weekend." Now, if you want to be really connected with customers. That means, I think, and what I saw with the showcase is really experiencing things firsthand. We call it customer immersion. You mm-hmm. have to go and really immerse with your customers. Spend time with them in their homes. Spend with their permission. Spend time with them shopping. Spend time with them. You know, using your own products because not only does it give you that real connection, but it also gives you visceral, emotional memories that give you conviction to get into action. And I talk about City Mapper. And every time City Mapper moves to a new city, uh, they have a thing called the Travelling Circus. They get a cross-section of their team. Uh, they move to uh, the city. They live in that city for a month and they move Airbnb every two days. So they get to experience what life's really like travelling through that city uh, over and above just what the data says. Or Chiltern Railways, the highest rated uh, railway company here in the UK, they insist that their senior managers all live somewhere on the Chiltern Railways line Uh, and they have to uh, get on their own trains every day and they have to wear their name badges and a guy called Alan Riley who was in charge of customer experience there he said you know we do the forums and we do focus groups and we do meet the manager events but I learn everything I need to know on the 723 from Princess Risborough to London Mile the more formal the forum the less I learn so it's it's kind of it's going back to basic old school advice. But when you're a startup, you're close to your customers. The bigger the organization gets, the harder it is to stay connected with your customers. And that's where problems come in. So that's the, the overwhelming advice in the enablers, uh, which are the cultural ways of working in an organization, uh, is to is to do everything you can to stay connected to what really matters to your customers.
1: Oh, let me just add to that from page 164. It's only by fully immersing in people's real lives, experiencing firsthand at a human level what really matters to them, that people can reconnect with what's important to customers and have the visceral belief needed to push the organization into a new direction. That means speaking to them, observing them, spending time with them, serving them, and actually being them. And then I'm sorry. It's just my favorite chapter. I apologize. <laughs> I plead guilty. But page 169. When I ask business leaders if they're close to their customers, they always say yes. When I ask when the last time was they spoke to a customer, they usually say they can't remember. When I ask why they don't do it more often, the response is nearly always, I'd love to, but I just don't have time. But if you're running a business that relies on having customers, what on earth are you doing that's more important than speaking to them?
0: Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it?
1: John Sills, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would
0: be? Uh, It would be very simply, if in doubt, be human if in doubt be human behave in a human way act in a human way do what you think the right thing is if you're just acting like a normal human that we all are and you probably won't go far wrong so yeah the one thing for me would be if in doubt be human
1: but john that's hard
0: (laughs) (laughs) it is is hard being a human is hard actually that's why you got to take my nan's advice and drink more whiskey
1: yes i already know what i'm doing as soon as this uh, interview is over (laughs) Well, let's give the listeners something to do today just to get them thinking about some of the ideas we've talked about, put a, maybe put an idea from uh, the book into action, get them maybe putting pencil to paper, just go do something
0: yeah i I would think the one the one thing would be what we've just been talking about actually around connection I think really think about what you can do in the next two three four weeks to go and spend some time with real people oh. so can you can you go and work in the contact center for a day can you go and do some call cool listening can you just go and mystery shop your own stores or your own uh, product or your competitors' products can you just pick up the phone and ring a few of your customers can you go and visit a customer can you go to a store and just speak to a few people that are there or whatever your business is uh, you know find a few ways ways, and through some of those examples you, you, you just shared, Douglas, find a few ways just to spend some real time with real people, crucially, without talking about your products or your <laughs> service. Don't just ask them what they think about you and your product. Just go and find out about them and ask some questions, and you'll be amazed by what you hear back.
1: Yes, talk about them, and for the love of all things, holy, stop talking about yourself and your products, <laughs> <laughs> even for just a moment. Oh, great advice. That is such valuable advice. I can't tell you how many books I've read where they talk about how just doing that gives them such such a competitive advantage. And Mm -hmm. as I often say to the listeners, you don't have to do this perfectly. Just do it a little bit and you're really going to stand out just to give you a little bit of uh, encouragement and inspiration. So John, uh, looking back, uh, what books have most inspired your working career?
0: It's such an interesting question. It's really, really made me think. I think there's probably three books that were pinpoint in three quite different ways that, that have done that. The first is a book called The Inner Game of Tennis by a guy called Timothy Gordon. Oh, I just heard about that. Yeah, yeah which um really quite quite old book now uh but i read it quite early on in my career and it's a very short book but a brilliant book about coaching effectively yes and what you can learn about how humans behave and how you can coach and how you can manage and essentially how you can perform at a really high level it's framed all around tennis but you realize the lessons of it are, are applicable to so many people so i so I, that one was very important to me early on in my career through coaching and, and management then um a book called Where Good Ideas Come From by Stephen Johnson who's a brilliant writer on innovation uh, he also wrote a, a great book called How We Got to Now uh, and uh, they actually wrote, also they mentioned a book in there uh, about um, uh, a technique for producing good ideas which oh I'm
1: yeah sure. by James Webb
0: Young that's exactly right yeah um which was really really important to me when i was starting to really get into design and innovation and creativity uh and he's just such a wonderful wonderful writer as well the book is just fascinating to listen to um and then the third book is is on writing by stephen king oh um, yeah which uh actually is just a brilliant book anyway but I just you know I, I, early on in my career I was talked about funnily enough uh, modelling but a different kind of modelling the kind <laughs> right. of modelling where you the kind of modelling where you observe what great people do and try and copy it and, and uh, I find it fascinating to understand the habits of writers uh, and Stephen King is one of the, the greatest and the uh, the most productive writers in, in our generation at least and, and it's a fantastic book about writing and him and his habits and, and he really challenges you to do that and I found that brilliantly useful in the past few years as I've uh, started to get more into writing as well, so I think for three different reasons, they'd be the three books that I would, um, I would say, have inspired different parts of my career.
1: Very interesting answer. And is this your first book?
0: This is my, uh, this is my first uh, full book. Yeah, I've, I've written some short stories for things, but yeah, this is my first published book. Yeah.
1: Well, it seemed like a book written by somebody who had already written some books. So thank you, <laughs> thank you. I, and I greatly enjoyed uh, reading it. Your personality came through. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend, or uh, maybe looking forward to reading?
0: Yeah, t- t- yeah, probably. I mean, you mentioned actually Alchemy by Rory Sutherland. I mean, that's two or three years old now. But if, if your listeners haven't read it, I think it's just a brilliant, brilliant book. It's, oh, that um,
1: book's going to have such a long shelf life.
0: Yeah. Oh, I loved it. I mean, it's you know, I'm very tempted to talk about. Uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, but mm-hmm. I think I read that ninety percent of people don't actually finish it. So, uh, but it's a very, it's a very tough book, but a brilliant book. But Alchemy is 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 amazing. I'd recommend that. I'd recommend uh, a book called Humanizing Risk that's literally just come out by oh. a guy called Christian Hunt, uh, and that is, um, I suppose, a, a, almost a compliment to to my book. I think he he's a, an ex compliance guy, operational guy, and he talks about how you can bring humanity into compliance and risk management in big organisations. Um, which is a, a fascinating topic and read. And then the, uh, the only other one I'd suggest is nothing to do with marketing, but it's called Prisoners of Geography by a guy called Tim Marshall, where uh, he explains the politics of the world by the geography of the world. And uh, it's one of those books that, uh, really kind of, you read it and you, you suddenly realize everything you thought you knew was completely wrong. uh, And and the predictability of politics actually based on the geography of the world. So, it's a fascinating book. Oh, Nothing yeah. A fascinating book.
1: Prisoners of Geography, 10 maps that explain everything about the world. That's
0: oh. it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. And the follow-up actually as well. Uh, the Power of Geography is also really great.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, I see them all here. Have you ever heard of a book called The Customer... Copernicus?
0: Yeah, I have to my business partner... Uh, Charlie Dawson wrote that so you're right I should have mentioned that so so uh, in the foundation so Charlie set the company up uh, and I joined uh, many years ago so two years ago Charlie uh, Charlie wrote a book called The Customer Copernicus which is how to create a customer-led business and and I guess the way our books interact is Charlie's book is kind of from the top down looking at uh, culture and leadership and organizations that have grown and been there and done it uh, and how they kind of lost it and I guess my book's a bit more from the the bottom up from the customer experience from what you doing with your customers. And they they nicely meet in the middle, which is handy for us from a business perspective.
1: Well, I knew that you'd heard of it because you mentioned it a few times in the book. Yeah. But is yeah. that is that one as good as yours?
0: I I absolutely think it is. That's <laughs> a very difficult I, question. I'm trying to get you in trouble because I, yeah. I know you're going you to the are. cocktail hour. Yeah. You, yeah, you are. Yeah, exactly. Which I can, I can say. And to, to uh, reassure you, they are very empowered, the team. They are very much enjoying themselves well, uh, with my, my whiskey at the moment. Yes, <laughs> a, a
1: tribute to their management. So, uh, well, if he, if that guy ever does uh, interviews, I mean, that looked like a really interesting book. And I know a guy who interviews authors of new marketing and yeah. sales books. And now, let's be honest, he's not the brightest bulb on the chandelier, but his guests are really phenomenal. So, you know, yeah. I'll put it, I'd, actually, I'd actually heard about that book. And you know what? I looked all through my I, – I don't have it. And I remember thinking, you know what? Somebody probably contacted me about that and said, hey, would you be interested? And I said, yeah, can you send me a copy? And then yeah. it's about happens half the time for some reason it never, never shows up. But uh, you know, yeah, yeah, see what yeah. you think. I don't need an answer right away like the emergency room did. Uh, yeah. You know, see what you yeah, think definitely. of this interview, and and uh, you know maybe uh, he can listen to it and decide if he wants his reputation to take a hit by being on the marketing book podcast. So well, uh,
0: well I, th- I think we have to do this because then you're you can really be the judge of which book's better. Uh, uh, you'll be the, you're the, you'll be the independent uh, uh, auditor. So yeah, yeah we definitely let's definitely do that. So
1: we could then you know have like the the. Found- Foundation founder uh, throwdown yeah. and like a celebrity <laughs> yeah. deathmatch. Yeah. Yeah. Our own yeah. cage fight. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, I like it. Like you, uh, like uh, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg exactly. want to yeah. do. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not sure how well that's going to go for Elon Musk, but who am I to, you know, uh, tell him what yeah. to do? So, yeah. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books that have been mentioned, your company site, your personal site, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter account. Dear listener, please reach out in some way to John and uh, thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Congratulate him on the book. Let him know if you learned something from the interview. He already said he hasn't heard from a lot of people, and I think he'd like to hear from you. So, And also, you know, guests on the show have told me that they really do enjoy hearing from Marketing Book uh, Podcast listeners, and not just because Marketing Book Podcast l- listeners are really, really, really ridiculously good-looking, and if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, like Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now, unless you're driving, please don't, please don't do it while you're driving, and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is The Human Experience, How to Make Life Better for Your Customers and Create a More Successful Organization. The author is John Sills. John, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast
0: thank thank you very much for having me and i'm i'm off to listen to the human league for the rest of the evening now goodbye tin man <laughs>
1: And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living, self-education will make you a fortune.